Welcome back to Divorced and Done. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers helping you navigate your divorce quickly and efficiently without bankrupting yourself emotionally or financially. Everything we talk about in this podcast is for your informational purposes, but it is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Darren Schmidt, I was thinking about law school this week. Do you remember law school? You must have been having a nightmare. Uh, no, thankfully, uh, almost 10 years into this profession, the school nightmares, I can happily say, have subsided. What's I, a school I, nightmare? Have you never had the school nightmare? Like, it's sort of like, oh no, I'm in this class that I was not actually attending, and I was registered for it, and the final exam is now, and I need to be oh, yeah. prepared for the exam. You, that that dream? Like, you're like, oh, it's, it's March 28th, and I, sure. I just realized I have a final, and I didn't even buy the textbook, and I didn't go to any class. What am exactly. I, what's going to happen? You, have you had a variant of that dream? I didn't know it was called the school dream, but yeah. I I've think had, everyone's, yeah. yeah, had that dream, and it's just stress and freaking out, but that was not the dream. I actually wasn't a dream at all while I was thinking about law school. I was thinking about our admin law, coincidentally, final exam that you and I had a little bit over 10 years ago. Actually, not quite 10 years ago. Actually, yeah, it would have been 10 years ago, the fall of 2010, when we wrote our administrative law final exam. And law school exams are not like multiple choice. They have short answer or long answer. And one of the questions was, you are now a clerk for newly appointed Justice Wagner. Please write him a memo on this issue. And the first thing you and I said to each other at the end of that exam wasn't the substance of the exam, was who's Justice Wagner? And I only mentioned that story because we were law students, we should be engaged in all things law, and we learned about the Canadian Supreme Court vacancy, that there was one, through an exam question. This week, similarly, you had a great post on LinkedIn. There is another vacancy on our Supreme Court, and unlike in the U.S., where that's always a major news item, in Canada, it's not. So the Supreme Court, there's an opening, they're hiring, you posted that job ad, but I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about, at least for our listeners, appellate courts in Canada, how they're different, how they impact a divorce process, and how they don't. Anyone listening's probably never been to an appeal level court. If you have, uh, you probably uh, feel like that was probably a big waste of time and money. Not that they don't do good work, but it just it's not a court that people connect with. When people think of courts, they think of Judge Judy, they think of trial trial judges who are listening to witnesses and, and lawyers make arguments. Appeal level courts like the Supreme Court are a little bit different. And so what we wanted to do just in terms of maybe adding some value given the um, Supreme Court vacancy in Canada, adding some value to you, the listener, what are appeal level courts? You may end up in one at one point. Uh, we hope not. We hope you follow the divorced and done steps and are able to resolve things without going to court. But what's an appeal level court? So uh, trial court, that's a court of first instance. That's where you go and have your trial if you have a legal matter, including a family law matter. If one of the parties is unhappy with the outcome at trial, then they can appeal it to an appeal level court in that province. So if you're going to trial in Alberta, you get a decision from the Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta. One of the parties that's dissatisfied with the outcome can then appeal that decision to the Court of Appeal of Alberta. 
There are technical timelines around when an appeal has to be filed, what must be submitted to the court of appeal, um, and then subsequent deadlines around filing all these things. And ultimately, some months later, very likely, you will get an oral argument in front of the court of appeal. And then they will consider the issue and then they will render some sort of decision. And then if you're not happy with that outcome, you might then go to the Supreme Court. And that's what we're talking about today because one of the Supreme Court justices is retiring in September, Michael Moldaver. Uh, he has been on the court, I think, for 10 years or so. And uh, justices on the Supreme Court have to retire after um, they turn 75. And I believe he's turning 75 in September. So uh, Justice Moldaver has aged out. And there's a new vacancy. And uh, if you're listening to this and uh, you're interested in applying, uh, you may be able to apply. Um, we were talking about this yesterday, Rob. What are the hiring posted, credentials? Yeah, you posted the job application onto your LinkedIn. <laughs> and lots of people go on LinkedIn to look for new jobs. I mean, you can go to Indeed. Uh, great, the Supreme Court's hiring. <laughs> Maybe I want to do that this year. What? Because you reviewed the application. I did not. What are the general requirements for a Supreme Court justice in Canada? What they're doing this time, they're doing Canadian Justice Idol. So it's like Canadian Idol or American Idol. They're going to have everyone submit applications, and then they're going to have a singing competition. Uh, I believe the theme this year is Motown. So um, if you're familiar with, you know, the Supremes, <laughs> I, I think that's maybe the title of this episode. You can you can do some Supremes or Stevie Wonder, and if you're the best, you're the judge. That's that's what they're doing now. We are recording this on April 6th. We're five days removed from April Fool's. There is no talent component uh, in terms of novelty <laughs> talents to becoming a justice of our highest court. There is not. I okay, okay. am only joking. Um, although that would be really fun and uh, entertaining for a moment. I'm not sure I would want judges on our highest court appointed based on their Motown singing talents. What it is, is the uh, requirements for being hired for this, you, you have to be a lawyer for at least 10 years and in good standing with your provincial law society or a sitting judge in Canada at whatever level, like a court of appeal justice in a province, trial level justice. Uh, those, are, those are the requirements. So if you meet those minimum requirements, you can then submit an application to the Supreme Court uh, advisory panel, basically a selection committee. And I had a brief look at the application form. It's called a questionnaire. You can look it up online if you want. It's a 21-page document, and it looks pretty similar to a document you might fill out if you're applying for really any other type of professional job for the government. I assume if you want to get a job as a payroll clerk for the federal government or provincial government, you have to fill out a questionnaire. So this questionnaire is like, where do you live? What's your name? Uh, give us your work history. What are some important decisions you were part of as a judge uh, or as a lawyer? Um, what are some notable accomplishments? And you fill out the form, you submit that along with a resume and some references. It goes into the advisory panel made up of, I believe, eight people one of whom is the former premier of Prince Edward Island. I think he's newly appointed to the panel. And the panel then shortlists a list of about five or 10 candidates. And ultimately, the successful candidate is chosen by our prime minister exclusively. And we were going to contrast this to what we just saw in the U.S. with the judge, 
uh, Brown, uh, Jackson Brown, I think is her name, um, appointment process through the U.S. You'd be much more familiar with that. But anyone listening to this probably wants to compare and contrast the 21-page questionnaire I've just described to that process. So, Rob, there's some notable differences. Yeah, just for popular conversation, the American process, Supreme Court justices in the U.S., like Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who is just likely to be appointed, are appointed with uh, confirmation through the Senate. So all 100 senators in the U.S. get to vote yay or nay on that appointment and ask questions live on TV. In Canada, as you've outlined, Darren, the appointment process used to exclusively come through the Prime Minister's office. Now, I think it was since the Harper era, we do have that committee sort of appointment process where applicants are narrowed down and then a short list of usually 10 is generated, I think, through the Prime Minister's office. As opposed to in the U.S., where it is a much more public spectacle. In Canada, you and I will recall about 10 years ago, the Canadian government tried sort of mirroring the, the American approach, at least as a public sort of educative function, through having not mock confirmation hearings like the U.S. does, but allowing MPs to ask some questions to the nominee. And I think after some years, Canada stopped doing that in favor of this committee. And unlike in the U.S. and Canada, it's an appointment to age 75. In the U.S., as we know, it is a for-life appointment. And often because of the contentious nature of Supreme Court appointments in the U.S. and because they've become so political, justices are dying in office and not retiring, which are then leading to their subsequent uh, successor appointments and becoming all of the political show now that we see in the U.S. that we don't see in Canada. But in terms of Canadians and for folks getting divorced listening to this podcast, the odds of any family matter actually reaching the Supreme Court or even contemplating that are near zero. They are. And anyone listening to this is going, well, Rob and Darren tell me, us, the listeners all the time, stay out of court. And I think a vast, vast majority of family law cases do resolve. Maybe one to 5% actually run even some sort of contested hearing, let alone a full-blown trial. When I say contested hearing, I mean an interim application deciding parenting issues before a full-blown trial. So even those sort of matters are extremely rare. So the number of reported decisions that we see come out every year from the trial level courts, that's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of total family law cases that are ultimately resolved or decided in this country. So that's just the trial level court. And then there's, you know, what I've described earlier, the notion of one party's not happy with that trial level outcome they then have to go to a provincial appeal level court and make arguments to that court that that trial level judge made an error and that they made an error either in law, in interpreting the law or applying the law to the case, or that they just misapprehended the facts of the case or didn't understand the facts of the case well enough to make an informed decision. And accordingly, the appeal level court should set it aside. Just as a note, I believe all appeal level courts in Canada provincially typically include a bench of three members of that court deciding it. I'm aware of some instances where five members will step in. What comes to mind recently is the Alberta greenhouse gas case. I think they challenged the constitutionality of it and five members of the bench sat in on that. 
but most appeal level courts in Canada include three members of that court who will hear the issue and then they will render a decision on it. And uh, of course, at the Supreme Court of Canada, there's nine justices that sit akin to the U.S. Uh, However, three justices must be from Quebec to help interpret Quebec's civil code. And so three must come from Quebec. And more um, generally, although I don't think this is set out in the Supreme Court Act, the balance of the six justices generally are appointed from regions that reflect our population distribution in Canada. So you'll get a couple of justices from the West, uh, maybe one from BC. I would think at all times, three justices the, are, are from Ontario, and there might be one justice from um, Atlantic Canada or, Merit, or the Maritimes, just to give some regional distribution amongst the uh, justices on the bench so that all of Canada is reflected on the bench. Um, but really, coming back to your point, Rob, the notion of anyone really going to the Supreme Court from having a family law matter uh, go through the trial level um, court at any province, that's extremely rare and it's very unlikely to happen. We've had very, very few cases from the Supreme Court, even over the last 20 years that have been decided on a family law issue. I think for you and I, there are really five or six major family decisions that most family practitioners are conversant with, Um, but that's really it. And in terms of practicality, even just thinking about our provincial level appeals court, for myself, I've only ever really done one appeal uh, that I can think of that sort of went forward into the court of appeal in all of my practice. How about you? Oh, yeah. You, you, sh- you saw me go to the uh, court of appeal of Alberta once. That was, and that was, I recall, that was an intersection of a family and a corporate matter, was it not? Uh, it was just a pure corporate matter. This is before so there, my oh, there was no pra- family, family. There was no family element. None. So on family matters, though, that was my question for you. Uh, Have you appealed any family matters or participated in any family appeals? No. And the reason is people don't have the money for that. Like that's just the reality here is there's not enough money, energy, capacity, resources, if you want to call it, for most people to stomach the notion of going through yet another level of court to try and make that argument. And what I would say is the person appealing the trial judge, they bear the onus of really proving on a fairly high threshold, uh, legal threshold, that the judge did make an error and the appeal court should set that court aside. If you think about it, um, from a policy standpoint, we do treat trial level decisions with deference. Uh, because if we didn't at an appeal court, there would just be an incentive for people to appeal decisions all the time with the hopes that I get yet a second kick at the can. That's not what it is. It's really convincing those three people at the court of appeal that that judge at first instance made a serious error and this court must step in in the interests of justice to set that aside. That's a really high threshold. And again, the reason we 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 don't lightly set aside trial decisions is because the trial judge heard all the evidence. We want to have a policy of, from a policy standpoint, at least in Canada, that's a final decision. We don't want litigation in this country to persist 
for years and years and years and promote more litigation, particularly on family files. That's a great point. Uh, and our listeners may recall in the fall, last fall, you and I talked about the Colucci case, which was yes. a couple that was divorced in the mid 90s with the ultimate and issue about child support being determined in 2020. And not to say that the path to the Supreme Court from divorce to Supreme Court actually took 25 years, but it's the notion that those parties were still in conflict for that long and had lawyers, rightly or wrongly, rightly, legally, that continued that conflict all the way to the Supreme Court. I, I think, as we know, for family matters, 98% of these matters settle, which is why we said in our very first episode of this podcast, to be a divorced and done person, you are one of the 80% of people in this country that just want your divorce over and want it to be done, and you don't want to go all the way to the Supreme Court. But hopefully this summary and discussion about what our Supreme Court is and how it operates was helpful. And if anyone does want to have a look at that job posting, it's there in Darren's LinkedIn. You can check out the Supreme Court of Canada's website. And the one thing I would say about the Supreme Court, not that it's directly relevant to anyone listening to this, because as you say, no one's going to the Supreme Court that's listening to this, because you are a divorced and done person. But one thing our court has done really well, the Supreme Court, is transparency through its proceedings. So every decision that the Supreme Court takes, there's a written decision. You can check those out on the website. You can also check those out on canly.org. Some of you may be familiar with that. That's Canada's free legal research website. Um, but more broadly, you can also watch the arguments that the Supreme Court holds for all of its decisions. And what you'll see is the justices sitting in their chamber in Ottawa, and you'll see a bunch of lawyers sitting in their black robes. And then there'll be a lawyer sit standing in front of the nine justices as they're sort of positioned in a semicircle around that lawyer peppering that lawyer with questions. And it's not the most exciting thing, but it's at least an opportunity to see what the court does. And I'd say at least over the last couple of years, uh, the Chief Justice Wagner has made some efforts to made the, make the Supreme Court more accessible and open and, dare I say, friendly. They did hold some arguments in Winnipeg uh, before the pandemic hit, and that was the first time the Supreme Court had heard any argument on any case outside of its regular chambers in Ottawa. So back to my point of selecting justices through a Supreme Court Justice Idol or pick a weird format. Um, yes, it's extreme to think, but is the court moving in a more friendly, open, uh, accessible way? I think so. It has a uh, it has a LinkedIn account. It has a Twitter account. I don't think it yet has a TikTok account, but I would love that. Get some of these justices doing... Uh, uh, the Harlem Shake, or uh, whatever the the dance is of the day, uh, I think that'd be super fun. Will we see that? No, but uh, we can always hope. Darren Schmidt, you and I both big fans of now Chief Justice Wagner, who of course we first learned about through a news <laughs> alert in our administrative law test 10 years ago. I'm Rob Woodward. This has been Divorced and Done. Thanks for being with us, and we look forward to joining you again.